You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash eu-west-europe. hopefully see the start of what the European Commission called the EU Conference on the Future of Europe. Um, This conference has been postponed um, for 18 months now. There are definitely bigger challenges in Europe and worldwide right now than the future of Europe as such, but it is intended to ask big questions about European integration, around deepening and widening, around the rise of liberal democracies amidst member states. And it wants to get citizen input from members of the European Union um, transnational governance project. All four talks that will have this quarter next speak to aspects of this future. And today uh, I'm really happy that we can start with a relatively new political configuration in Europe, namely Euro-level parties. And we have with us uh, one of the experts on this topic, Professor Nico Switek. Uh, Nico Switek is a visiting German academic exchange professor here in the Jackson School of International Studies and Political Science. And he has re- researched and written very extensively on EU-level parties. He holds a PhD from the political science department at the University of Duisburg-Essen in Germany, and he is a member of the North Rhine-Westphalia School of Governance. His field is comparative party research on the national and transnational level, and he will open up this four-part EU democracy series by speaking to us on true party democracy in the EU question mark the potential and role of transnational European parties. So I'm happy to turn this over to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for the kind introduction, uh, Sabine, and thank you so much for the opportunity to present here today. Um, European party organizations or your parties are a a niche topic of research on on European integration, but I would argue that they um, touch on a lot of very basic fundamental questions of European integration. You just uh, mentioned that. Um, Nevertheless, at at this point in time, you might be surprised if you hear uh, the the title of my um, talk and you could ask, you know, is it too optimistic maybe to think about a true party democracy in in the EU? and there might be other things you, you think about. So probably the first thing that comes to mind is Brexit, uh, the UK leaving the EU, the first ever exit of a state uh, after a long and continuous process of um, enlargement. Secondly, you probably heard about the struggles uh, last year over a new budget and Corona relief um, measures uh, because those were tied to questions of a rule of law uh, mechanism. Um, And as this Financial Times article um, alludes to, Poland and Hungary strongly resisted this mechanism, fearing that it is 
aimed at them. Um, and this is true. Uh, uh, so several uh, indices have shown that there is democratic backsliding in Poland and Hungary, and, and that there is some form of illegitimate overreach uh, of government. And uh, Freedom House in 2020 uh, rates Hungary as partly free. Uh, that's the only state in, in the EU with this um, rating. So the EU is, is increasingly wary of propping up these governments um, that undermine democracy with funding. Um, so it might seem foolhardy uh, to discuss true democracy on European level at, at a time like this. But then again, uh, there are voices who argue uh, that a disconnect between dimensions of European integration is specifically part of the problem. So while policy issues were elevated to European level, uh, democratic decision-making procedures were not. Um, and, and one element that fuels Euroscepticism is the sentiment that there's a technocratic elite in Brussels that is not accountable to the people. Uh, so that is the fuel for the anti-elite, anti-establishment populist uh, rhetoric uh, we see. So I don't want to force an introductory seminar on the EU on you, and, and it wouldn't work in, in those uh, 30 minutes, I'm sure. Uh, but let me briefly recapture the fundamental characteristics of the EU, um, which we should know when we discuss questions of democracy or democratization. Um, the EU is a unique mix of an international organization and a state or political system. Uh, institutionally, the heads of state uh, and government meet in the European Council and decide on the most prominent issues, and they decide by consensus. The Council of Ministers uh, from, consists of ministers from, from national governments in different configurations, depending on the policy area, uh, and together with the parliament, they make up the legislature. And most decisions uh, in the Council need a qualified majority uh, to pass. So 55% of the states representing 65% of the population. And this means that states can be overruled. And finally, we have the European Parliament, the co-decider with the Council on EU legislation. And that is the only directly elected uh, institution. Um, and here decisions are taken by majority uh, voting. And the Parliament is structured by party groups. So we're getting closer to the question of, of uh, parties on European level. Uh, and the representatives are not seated by nationality, but rather by party group or party affiliation. So on the one hand, we have sovereign states, and on the other, we have a parliament that resembles the assemblies of representatives in national states. And in the uh, terminology of integration literature, this corresponds to a mix of intergovernmental and supranational elements we find in, in the EU. So how the bodies are constituted with the direct and indirect links of legitimacy, but also by their mode of decision-making. Um, and we see a similar logic when we turn to the dimension of policies, where we have some fields uh, where the EU does not really have a say, so security policy, very limited health policy, um, what explains the diverging answers to the corona pandemic, um, and highly integrated uh, areas. So, of course, the single market, one of the core elements of European integration, but also, for instance, the supervision of medicinal products. So the COVID-19 vaccines were approved by an agencies for all EU member states. So let's take uh, a closer look at this supranational um, element of the EU. Um, and 
here we have the parliament resembling an institution, very much resembling an institution in a, in a classic uh, democracy. So um, if we look at turnout in European elections where the parliament is uh, elected, turnout was rather low uh, since the first direct election in 1979 um, and continuously declined over time, even dropping below 50% uh, in 1999. Um, of course, this is only one variable, um, but nevertheless, we can see this as an expression of lack of interest or even repudiation of the EU. And this is one of the big reasons why scholars talk about a democratic deficit, um, where citizens turn away from the EU with the sentiment that they're not able to influence uh, policymaking at all uh, that's happening on the European level. And this is somewhat paradox because over time, the competences of the European Parliament actually grew. Uh, and now the co-decision procedure is standard in, in uh, um, decision-making. So um, there are extensive discussions um, how to address this democratic deficit by uh, scholars, but also by EU actors who, who have really have stakes uh, in that game. And um, just maybe a nod to the topic of my talk today, you can see that in the last election in 2019, for the first time ever, turnout indeed went up. So you might want to keep that um, in mind. So this kind of leads us to the, to the puzzle at the heart of the re research I want to present to you today. So um, if we have this democratic deficit, uh, there are federalists that postulate uh, if the European Union would be reformed to a United States of Europe, it could resemble that true democracy. Um, and of course, that's kind of the most uh, straightforward solution. Just see the European level as the top level in a federal system like the US and build the institutions accordingly. Um, and this is a vision some actors have and, and some actors aspire. But you could argue with the problems we just heard about, this is not really feasible right now. It would imply a complete shift of sovereignty uh, from national to, to European level. So there are other ideas uh, or suggestions that are a little less sweeping and focus more on the party system on European level, um, describing it as half-baked and stipulating that if we only have real party competition, um, that would already help with this deficit. Um, for instance, change the electoral system so candidates uh, will run on transnational lists and not in the member states as they do right now, and they will compete on European policy uh, issues. So if we say political parties are essential for democracy, if we strengthen parties on European level, there will be more uh, democracy. And then there is um, a rather modest proposal, which is more focused on changing practices in the existing setting. So not really institutional reform, just um, doing things a little different. And this is the idea of introducing European-wide candidates for the European elections, which is based on wording in, in the Lisbon Treaty. And those candidates compete for the office of president of the commission, somewhat the government of, of the EU. And this is supposed to mimic the logic in a parliamentary system where a winning majority in the parliament forms a government. Uh, and you can see uh, Jean-Claude Juncker and Martin Schulz on this slide, uh, the EPP and PES candidates in 2014, uh, when this was applied for the first time. And Juncker indeed became commission president um, after the election. So those candidates lend a face to those party families and the, Euro and the European campaigns. 
and they help the Euro parties, which nominate the candidates and coordinate their campaigns to gain visibility. Um, so that's kind of what we're interested in. We could argue this might lead to that competitive party system and that could lead to that true democracy, but it is kind of that link uh, as one element uh, I want to, to focus on. So Euro parties are a specific type of party organization, and this is the definition given by the EU itself. So um, the term Euro parties means transnational extra parliamentary federations of national political parties from several EU member states united by political affinity. These organizations are therefore not identical with political groups in the European Parliament, although they closely cooperate with one another. So there is a difference uh, between the parliamentary group and the party organization. B, they are transnational, they cross borders. And C, they're made up of national political uh, parties. Um, some by now do allow individual membership. So if we take a look at a specific example, let's take the European People's Party, the Christian Democratic uh, uh, Euro Party. Uh, we have the German CDU, Angela Merkel's party as a member, uh, also the Spanish Partido Popular. And finally, the Hungarian Fidesz, which is the party of Prime Minister Orban, uh, we just heard about in, in a different context. So, and that already tells you something about the range of positions those Euro parties um, have to cover in grouping or representing these individual parties. And the Christian Democratic Party family was very pro-European integration. So that is hard to align with the very Eurosceptic anti-EU positions of Fidesz. And um, Fidesz membership uh, was suspended just last year, so they might even be expelled um, from, uh, from the party. So there is um, extensive research on European integration, of course. Uh, the transnational party federations or Euro parties are somewhat a niche topic. Um, they're often seen as a manifestation of party families or ideologies. Um, or just as an addendum to the groups in the European Parliament. Um, but we saw that they're actually independent uh, from those um, uh, groups. There are quite some studies focusing on their historical development, kind of you know, mirroring the European integration. Um, and, and one of the most systematic accounts is still by, by Hicks and Lord, but somewhat dated um, by now. And newer studies uh, kind of investigate specific in, um, issues. So for instance, uh, the role in helping to shape the party systems of Eastern European states before they joined the European Union, because they could do some outreach the formal institutions couldn't do. Um, and, and other studies focus on um, if party statutes allow for individual membership, what procedures the parties choose for selecting their candidates, or how they manage the already difficult process of drafting a manifesto. So in, in the, the research project, I just want to briefly talk about, um, uh, I'm doing together with Christina Weissenbach, um, we uh, draw on institutionalization theory, because um, we, we think that the, the process perspective of this theory fits very well to the steady evolution um, we see of the Euro parties and that evolution by the political system itself. So it's not just the party that are changing, but the system they're operating in changes as well. And the uh, multidimensional understanding is able to capture the unusual multi-level and transnational composition compared to uh, national parties. So in our design, we assume that the introduction of the leading candidates in 2014 acts as a trigger 
uh, elevating Euro parties onto a new stage. And um, we want to specifically address the issue of routinization. So the idea that the party exists independently of its leaders in the routines of the members. Um, so it's the question if intra-party actors in national parties exhibit an understanding that they are, are aware of the umbrella of the Euro party and their sister party in other uh, EU states. And for the specific case of the Euro parties, uh, we divide routinization in the two dimensions of vertical and horizontal integration. So vertical means how much do national parties see themselves as members of the Euro party? And horizontal integration implies that they see other national member parties as their close allies or sister parties. Maybe just to, to talk about this trigger argument, uh, there is one question in the Eurobarometer, a regular public opinion poll conducted um, by the EU in all member states uh, that strikingly demonstrates changes after the introduction uh, of leading candidates in 2014. So citizens, citizens are asked uh, in how far their voice counts in the EU. And of course, that is closely related with questions of legitimacy and accountability we, we already touched on. And you can see that since 2004, a decisive majority of respondents would state that their voice does not count in the European Union, up to even 65% in 2011. Uh, after the European elections in 2014, um, the first time the Euro parties presented a leading candidate, uh, the numbers started to go up. Uh, and right before the European election in 2019, you can see that for the first time, uh, a majority of respondents would say, yes, my, my voice uh, does count. Um, the problem is in 2014, as you heard, Juncker became commission president. After the elections in 2019, the European Council that nominates the president of the commission, who is then voted on by the parliament, could not agree on one of the leading candidates and instead presented Ursula von der Leyen and the parliament grudgingly agreed. Um, so the model kind of failed um, and the voters were disappointed. And you can see that numbers started to um, decline again. Voters said, you know, that was not what we've been uh, promised. So the uh, character of the Euro parties poses a challenge to researchers. Um, they do have a party headquarter uh, with staff in, in Brussels and they do organize uh, regular party congresses, but most of the intra-party processes are rather invisible and there's virtually no scrutiny by the media, uh, which is very focused on national politics. So what we do in our project is we employ social media, and that is Twitter data, to um, answer our research question about integration. Um, and we, we say that, or argue that Twitter comes in uh, very handy because as an international social media platform, um, the main advantage is that it kind of offers the same structure for communication for all member states. So it streamlines campaign communication into the same structure. That, that is helpful for the campaign managers um, uh, working in the Euro parties or in the national parties, but uh, also for researchers who can then take a look uh, and try to understand uh, that data. In our project, we, we limit uh, our analysis to the four biggest uh, Euro parties. So the Liberals, the Social Democrats, the Christian Democrats and the Greens, mainly because those four most strongly embrace this leading candidate um, model. 
and we collected all tweets that were sent by the Euro Party's accounts, by the national member party's account, by the leading candidates for six weeks leading up to the European election. And it's, it's important to state. So, um, I mean, we know that Twitter is not equal to, to overall public discourse and it's very elite centered, right? And so we're not in any way saying that this is representative to what happened as the liberation discussion before the election, but we use it to try to understand the logic or the behavior in the party headquarters. So where we have the professional campaign staff, do they know that when they tweet that they have to reference a sister party or uh, their umbrella organization, the Euro Party. So the official party tweets uh, are taken by us as expression of party behavior. And in analyzing those tweets, we look at the mentions, the reference being made. So um, this slide shows you one example for the Irish Green Party. Um, and this is an example for horizontal integration. So they give uh, congratulations to their colleagues in the Green Party in the UK for their win in the UK local election. So they understand we're part of that larger group. And if the UK Greens uh, have a campaign in local elections, uh, then that kind of affects us and we reference them in this tweet. And then a second example, again, from the Irish Green Party uh, could be uh, this reference to the leading candid candidate, uh, Bas Aykut um, for the Green Party. Um, for the European Greens in 2019. And this is kind of the ideal type. So they mentioned the leading candidate and they also mention uh, the European Greens, their European um, party. And so that's kind of the idea. They mentioned the leading candidate and by doing that, they also reference uh, their, their party. So let's take a look at, at what our um, data uh, tells us, our empirical analysis. So this table summarizes all mentions as percentages of all tweets for the European elections in 2014 uh, and 19. And uh, the, the results are uh, somewhat uh, depressing, you could say. So um, for all party families, um, barely 1% of tweets uh, if we look bottom up, so the national parties referencing the Euro party um, mentions the uh, account of their respective uh, Euro party. So very uh, low numbers. And if you compare, I mean, our assumption would be that this would kind of institutionalize. And if you have that model again, 2014 was the first time, but if you have it the second time, there's some routines, parties are able to prepare for this campaign. Um, but there are two cases where the numbers even drop, so to even lower them. Um, but with ALDE and uh, the Social Democratic PES. Um, the numbers are a little bit more favorable for the leading candidate. So they receive about a double or triple the attention from national parties. Nevertheless, uh, still a low share of all tweets. Um, but you can see that's kind of the idea, right? With their faces, with the uh, element of personalization for the election campaign, it kind of works, but it just works for um, the candidates. And then in parentheses, you can see, uh, we kind of try to see what share comes from the home party. So Bas Aykut would be his Netherlands, uh, the Green Party from the Netherlands, uh, just to make sure it's not just the home party that's tweeting about that candidate, but we can see there's quite some variation. So it's not that the, the candidates are only endorsed from the party, from their national party they, they come from. So um, this model works, but it works for the leading uh, candidates uh, only in, in, on a low level. Um, the picture looks a little bit different. If we, uh, in, in vertical integration, look 
turn to top down, um, uh, the top down dimension. So euro parties actively try to engage with the national members, but of course that's not very surprising because that is their function to organize these election uh, campaigns. Um, and if we contrast this with the leading candidates and how they reference national parties, the numbers are uh, a little lower. So what we can see both ways, there seems to be a disconnect bottom up even more than top down, um, but the discussions seem to be somewhat detached. So there's a discussion on European level and there are discussions in the um, member states. If we look at horizontal integration, uh, the numbers are similar, so rather low, and it, they make up only those uh, uh, horizontal references make up only a low share of uh, all tweets. Uh, and let me just show you as one example, the uh, network graph we created for the European Green Party. So the nodes here are the Twitter accounts of the national parties, the Euro party and the leading candidates. And we arranged them manually to roughly rep represent geographical locations. So it's kind of a map of Europe and the Euro parties are in the center and the leading candidates are uh, next to their home uh, party. The edges, represent mentions from one account to another, and the size of the nodes reflects how often the account was mentioned. So first of all, again, you can see that the, um, the networks for 2014 and 2019 look very similar. So the second round of having leading candidates uh, did not change the game that much, and that's true for, for all of the Euro parties. Um, there are uh, a lot of mentions now for the European Greens uh, between the Euro party and the candidates. Um, so somewhat substantiating the argument that the campaign stayed confined to European level. Um, there are some links between national accounts and accounts on European level, but very few horizontal uh, references. And there are only, um, sorry, so this is kind of the, the, the European level uh, accounts that talk to, to each other the candidates and the euro parties and then there are a few exceptions uh, thinking about horizontal integration and these are mainly um, regional or uh, language communities so uh, ireland scotland and uk those parties kind of uh, talk to uh, talk talk to each other um, but otherwise uh, the, the horizontal links are, are very um, sparse one interesting example um, for the european greens uh, we have the Latvian Green Party. Um, so that's the only party in both election campaigns uh, that is not connected to the network at all. Um, and so they were expelled recently. So you could argue that you know, this network representation of social media data does at least in part capture what's happening uh, in, inside of the party. Okay, let me, uh, let me conclude. So um, the leading candidates uh, we saw led to a higher visibility of the European elections and affected uh, the perception that citizens' voices counts in the EU. So you, you saw that public opinion polling. Um, they might've had the feeling that they had a say in appointing the head of the European uh, Commission and that might've played a role in, in getting turn up uh, uh, going up as, as well. But it was mainly a win for the candidates themselves that did not truly extend to the Euro parties. And uh, with, with the data we presented, we could not see any increasing uh, vertical or horizontal um, integration. 
So, um, and on top of that, in 2019, the leading candidate model, which I showed you is kind of this modest change of practices in, in campaigning um, as an element of democracy, of supranationalism, clashed with the intergovernmental logic of the European Council. So when the heads of state and government um, could not build a compromise uh, to select uh, one of the candidates. Um, so we could say that, unfortunately, this is an insufficient instrument um, to strengthen the role of parties on European level. And you do need more extensive institutional reforms um, to achieve this goal. So thinking about changing the electoral system, uh, having a transnational list uh, to end up um, maybe at, at the level of a true party uh, democracy in, in the EU. So thank you very much for your attention and I'm, I'm looking forward to your questions and comments. Thank you so much, uh, Nico. This was really a great introduction in one of the, the, the thorny problems of European integration. Um, parliamentary democracies, we all know, or many of us know, one of the staples of um, governance in across Europe and how to replicate or how to even get close to that kind of a model on a transnational level is um, a big question. Um, I'm really glad you broke it down for us in uh, the Twitter analysis because that does showcase um, quite a bit of um, disenchantment with the 2019 situation after the council had not uh, followed the lead of the parliament. Um, as I'm looking at uh, the Q&A here, um, why don't we start off with a couple of questions that really pertain to how you use social media analysis or Twitter analysis in particular here for your uh, project. Um, so there is one question, for example, um, by Terry Price um, asking you if by relying on Twitter and um, particular accounts, uh, you are not afraid that you will get manipulation by outsiders, um, interference as we've seen um, in other situations um, and, and in other electoral situations. And if I may add to that, um, so the maps you've been showing were tweets. What about retweets? Were those included or are you looking at the first knots of these um, Euro parties tweeting out um, in, in, in terms of the, the, the numbers? Because what we see then in between 2014 and 19 is really numbers of the EEP going down, other numbers of tweets going down. How do you interpret this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good, good questions. So the, the first question, um, of course, uh, and, and I mean, I think you know Twitter is is purging a lot of white supremacy accounts right now, and and a lot of users are surprised how their numbers are going down, uh, which often seem to be bots or kind of influenced by uh, yeah some troll farms that really steer those, and, and they're not really part of any online uh, communication. So I mean, there, there's a lot of difficulty in in substituting you know Twitter for what the discussion in before election is about, and, and you know that's kind of what we try to avoid. Because um, we know that would be very difficult. Um, um, I mean, it is. You could argue that because it is 
um, very much elite centered with the European uh, parties, it, it is a good fit in, in that case because we're interested in that elite discourse. But I mean, what we did um, uh, with our data um, is that we only took the accounts for the um, member parties, the official accounts for the member parties and the Euro parties. So, I mean, there's a lot more discussion where they're being retweeted, where somebody's talking about the Euro party, but we all left that out. And that's, I mean, that kind of explains the low number too. But we, we said, you know, we're interested in the mindset of the people working in the campaign headquarters on national level and European level. And, you know, seeing um, if they do a tweet about the elections, do they know, oh, we're a member of this um, uh, European party? Or do they know, oh, there are local elections in the UK, so maybe we should send out a tweet congratulating our sister party. So for us, it's kind of a proxy getting into the mindset of the, the professional campaign staff. And so we really reduce it down to this. Um, um, and, and that kind of where, where we say, you know, that's where we kind of free of, of uh, interference by some accounts or even by a large mass accounts, because it is those authoritative party accounts that, that we only um, focus on. And in, in the analysis, we, um, we used all tweets. So retweets are in there as well. So that's a good question to kind of, um, I mean, you, you could argue that a retweet is a lot less engagement than, you know, drafting your own statement and putting in that European Green Party or bus, I could, if I only retweet something where somebody else mentioned those two, that's even on a lower level. So um, we, could, we could maybe go back at the data and try to, um, try to divide in, in, in two groups. But I mean, that would even further reduce the already low numbers. So um, uh, yeah, but, but it's, it's a good question to, to maybe think about. And we do, I mean, we do have the content of the tweet. So this is just, you know, thinking about a network of references, of mentions, we could do additional analysis, what people often do, you know, sentiment analysis or looking at certain hashtags, you know, who, what, what is mentioned and uh, we, we have that data too. So we could try to um, maybe get in, um, see what, what topics the parties are talking about. Uh, so that, that could be uh, an option as well, as well going forward with, with the research. Mm -hmm. We also have a fair amount of questions about organizational structure. So um, generally, how would you explain these parties, these Euro parties are being formed? So where's the initiative? Um, where are the power struggles and the challenges in the formation phase of these parties? And um, what is the level of input of national parties in the routine of how they work? Let's start there. There are a few more organizational questions here. I'll get to them. Yeah, uh, yeah, great question. And um, I mean, it's uh, the, um, the, you could say that the Euro parties very much mimic what happens in, in Euro European integration. So it's in, in the EU, it's kind of institutionalized and uh, you have that clear path of an ever closer union and they kind of copy that, but outside of the, the institution. So, I mean, they, they just started as, you know, you have a global greens on, on a level or the international Christian Democrats. So they're just, they, they started out as just a way to coordinate uh, certain ideologies or very basic fundamental policies where we would say we are a party family and we want to have some form of secretariat where, you know, we can organize conferences, congresses, thinking about policy and maybe um, helping smaller parties, you know, in uh, 
um, early, early stage party systems to develop and give them some expertise. So that's how it started out. But then for the um, European level, um, you know, those parties alliances in Europe found that arena where they could really engage. Um, well, I mean, what the, the big difference uh, between Euro parties and national parties is that they're not the gatekeeper for candidates. What makes parties strong on national level, of course, is their policy position, but then that they put up candidates for the elections. And as a candidate, I have to align myself um, in more so in multi-party system than in two-party systems, as we, we know with the US, but I have to align myself with the platform of the party and the party can sanction me uh, if I deviate too many times in when I'm in parliament and I'm sitting in the group and I'm not voting with, with my party. So that's kind of the gatekeeping power of the party. Uh, they are putting up the candidates. And if you have proportional representation and, and lists that are drawn up by party congresses, the parties are even stronger. And the Euro parties are missing this. So they can organize the election campaign. They can bring in leaders of national governments, of, of representatives of those parties in Brussels, but they can't say, you know, if you in the group, if you vote against our uh, interests, you know, we can expel you. And Fides is a good example because my students in class are always surprised. What? Fides is a member of EPP, of the, you know, Merkel's party. Um, so, and you can see that right now, I mean, they are suspended and they, they might be expelled, but it's a lot harder for the Euro parties to, to find that uh, common denominator. Um, and they, they are kind of reduced to that role of coordinating the parties. But I mean, they are very important for election campaigns. And that's why we came up with you know, this idea to focus on the election campaigns, because um, that's where they can offer their expertise and saying, you know, we know European politics, we know all the different uh, member states, and we can help you organize a truly uh, European election campaign in your country. And maybe one last point, of course, we see very similar um, balances of powers in the Euro parties as we see in the European Union. So, and I mean, that's still a venue for, for research. Of course, the larger parties uh, are more influential. So if you have the German Christian Democrats or the Spanish Partido Popular or the, the German Greens in the European Greens, they have a lot of power because, I mean, they have strong electoral results. They have a lot of members. So, you know, they have more influence than maybe smaller uh, in, in Eastern European party systems. Greens all, only sometimes play a very marginal role. So there's, um, you know, there's... Uh, it's not very equal inside of the European parties, but some parties will have a lot of a bigger say in, in steering the party and defining policy platforms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, a related set of questions that I see here talks about what you mentioned in your conclusions, namely electoral reform, about ideas to make the Euro level party more visible and stronger. And uh, one suggestion you mentioned was to have European wide candidates, um, lists that really reflect the party all over Europe and not just in particular member states. Um, there's a counter argument here, of course, that you <laughs> know very well, right? Which is the argument that fuels um, the, the, the a more direct relationship between um, candidates and their electorate. Um, so how would you discuss that at this point? What are the pros and cons in thinking about electoral reform and, and, and what are the chances of this happening actually? Yeah, 
Um, yeah, it, it is an interesting debate. And, and like you said, I mean, it's going to play a role in the convent coming up, thinking about the future and, and reform ideas. And um, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, in one of her mission letters to one of her commissioners, she gave that kind of as an um, uh, something to work on the idea of how do we reform this leading candidate model? Because I mean, everybody noticed, you know, it, it didn't work this time. So uh, we either have to modify this or come up with something com completely else. Um, I mean, the, the, the idea of transnationalists, of course, it would strengthen the, the European level because then parties, depending on, on who those can, how those lists were, would be drawn up, um, can be held accountable to what they do in the European Parliament. But I mean, you're right, you could then argue then we have a detachment, you know, that they don't feel responsible for their national uh, constituencies anymore. I mean, there are many different um, ideas of what you could do about this. And uh, the German electoral system is one example where you kind of, Italy has that too, where you kind of mix uh, systems of having districts and also having lists and then kind, kind of coming up with a procedure to merge those two because um, of course you're right you still want to kind of keep that direct link uh, intact and then you could even argue if we look at in, look on national level the practices we see with political parties um, are what we would need on European level because in drawing up those lists parties are very clever or have developed strategies to have representation of all regions have you know, representation of different classes or groups, societal groups, um, or have expertise. You, know, you need, if you have a group, you need someone who knows about foreign policy, someone about environmental policy. So the parties in drawing up those lists don't just think about electability, but also how will the group later on work with that you know, group of representatives that has been elected. So um, you know, that creating that, that list, uh, even without districts, wouldn't even mean that you would completely lose uh, that link because parties do have an interest in, in um, creating a list that, that um, embodies all this. And maybe one last point, uh, I mean, Emmanuel Macron, the French president suggested that once the UK left the EU, we could uh, use those seats to create the first transnational list and kind of you know, elect that group um, by a transnational list as kind of a first step into maybe a, um, a larger reform later on. But I mean, he, he didn't get a, a majority for that. So, you know, that, that didn't happen. Um, but I mean, those are probably often the, the most used strategies in European integration that you don't start with that full-fledged institutional reform, but you come up with smaller steps and then it kind of involves um, in, into, into something uh, like this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. And, and um, two more uh, questions that tie into that. One very straightforward to answer maybe for you. I, I wouldn't know the answer. Is this being taught in high schools? Are, are Euro level parties being taught uh, in high schools across Europe? They certainly weren't when I went to high school there, but you might know better. And another question that goes uh, back to um, an aspect of organizational structure that you had mentioned earlier um, in, in your talk, um, do we see the normative future of the EU more in transnationalization or in intergovernmentalism. Um, Joyce Mushaben, who you know, a colleague from uh, Georgetown on the East Coast, asks here, um, to what degree um, the, the, the value-free presentation that you um, gave us here 
um, does reflect the actual danger that we might look at if, for example, we're seeing Euroskeptic or Europhobic parties integrating supranationally or transnationally um, to become much more powerful and influential players uh, on the Brussels stages. So uh, while we all might think it's a good idea for Euro parties such as, you know, the Green Alliances, uh, the European People's Party and so on to think about more transnationalism. Um, what would we get if we had more intense, more strong visibility of those organized on the far right? Yeah, great, great questions. Um, so I'm, I'm sure they are not taught in high school. <laughs> um, and I just last year, I, I did a task force, which is a specific program at the Jackson School, um, you know, very hands on practice oriented where students come up with policy recommendations. And I did that on, on the Euro parties. Um, and my enthusiasm came from that I study political parties a lot. And, and that's kind of the how I arrived at, at European integration and kind of combining those two. Um, and, and again, I was surprised how hard it is to explain because I mean, it, you know, it, it touches on all these different issues on party democracy, on national European level, on knowing European institutions and European integration. So it's kind of this mix. Um, and it is still a, a, a big niche. And even some experts you, you will ask, um, you know, will say, well, we know all about the groups and we can look at the voting behavior. And of course, the argument is often, well, they're so unimportant. So why should we care about them? Right. So they're invisible. And only with the leading candidates, you know, the media realized it might make sense to cover those party congresses they have, because if they nominate a leading candidate, he could become commission president. So, you know, it takes some time. And that was our argument. So even if we start looking at 2014, it would take those five years to the next election for those routines to kick in. And then, unfortunately, we had the result that, you know, the model was uh, uh, ran in, in, into problems in, in 2019. So, um, yeah, they, they are still a very niche topic, but in thinking about the, I think it's helpful in thinking about the future. And um, I, I, for the task force, I organized an evaluator from Brussels because of Corona, he had to uh, be zoomed in. Uh, he, otherwise he would have come to, uh, to Seattle and he looked at the report and he said, well, I'm so surprised in Seattle, some, someone is thinking about Euro parties. You know, I have a hard time in Brussels explaining this to people. So, um, well, I'm doing a little PR for, for those parties maybe as, as well. Um, yeah, and then, I mean, that's, that's a good question. Uh, and probably if, if you think about true party democracy and true party competition on European level, you have to accept that there will be groups who are um, who, who see integration negatively and say, you know, we need to keep the status quo or even need to roll back something. I mean, of course, it's here we have the problem that um, as the European integration is, or the European Union is a moving target and there's still a debate about how should the substance of the system, how should the polity look like, um, which we would have difficulties allowing in a national system, right? So. Um, it's hard to imagine a party that freely would advocate, let's have a monarchy or, or uh, something completely else. Um, but on European level, kind of the, the rules of the game are topic of the political debate as well. So it would be very hard to fine tune what can we talk about and um, 
uh, yeah, what, what, what is, where's kind of the, the limits we have to draw to discourse? Um, and, and you're right. I mean, the, those parties, they make use of, of the funds they get for parliamentary groups, and they do have Euro parties, even though they're, they're more technical. So they're uh, international alliances, alliances of nationalists, you could say, but not by true spirit, but more to just organize against the other parties. Um, and of course, you know, they didn't really present a leading candidate. They were not interested um, in, in this at, at all. But I mean, you, you still could argue that at least if you have that party competition, they would have to advocate their positions and voters could say, well, do I want, want to um, send someone into the parliament who, who thinks, you know, we should keep the status quo in European integration or have a rollback or think critical about the single currency. So that, that would be part of it. And then the last point, of course, is, um, and that's something you could see critical about those visionaries that talk about the, the uh, federal uh, United States of Europe, which might be a great you know, figure of thought and they're kind of ending up somewhere uh, like this. But I mean, the EU, this intergovernmental um, element is not just um, a transitional stage, but it, it fundamentally represents those states. And even in the US, you know, with the Senates and, and representation of state level, that is something you need in a federal system. So th there's no way that was what I was kind of trying to say to just, you know, jump on that supranational ship and just sail in that direction. But you kind of have to keep those balances. Uh, and you have to keep them in decision making in those linkages to kind of respect the original states. And um, uh, yeah, so it's not just that, you know, we how do we get away from that intergovernmental aspect, but how do we respect those two and how do we integrate them that they kind of work uh, together effectively. Mm -hmm. Thank you, makes, makes a lot of sense to me. Um, another question we have here from our colleague Gunther Smitjens, who um, is interested in the Baltics very much. And I would think that question could be framed around the Baltics is how, or, or to what degree do you perceive differences in transnational integration, um, fever, verf, optimism or pessimism between large countries and small countries? Um, do we see what, you know, is a standard argument in Europe that larger member states then also dominate the larger Euro party families? Do we see power play? Do we see respect for smaller countries? Um, um, do we see the post 2004 accession wave kind of reframing how European parties, Euro-level Euro parties think about themselves? Maybe you can speak a little bit to that. Yeah, great, great question too. Um, so, I mean, what, one in, interesting research uh, um, project I mentioned uh, is, you know, that, that looking, uh, that, that is great work looking at how those Euro parties um, worked in creating party systems in Eastern Europe. So, um, you know, because I mean, there was a lot of fluidity and, and they had to build up parties by scratch. And so Euro parties came in and were able to, with their party family umbrella, um, help with policy formulation and kind of put parties on a track. And um, I mean, this is somewhat foreign influence as well, but I mean, you know, it's, it's voluntary. So, but parties could use those resources to, um, to kind of stabilize. And so, um, and even before we had the official um, session to the EU, they were helping and, and um, building up party systems in those states. 
um, and I, you know, there, there was a, a, a lot of interest in using um, using that that expertise. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a similar question to to uh, what we see in the European Union as a whole. How do you balance the interest of, of the larger states and and the smaller states? Um, the, um, the 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 question is how will this change now after we see the the UK leaving? So of course, um, you know, the, it was kind of the UK, France, and Germany, uh, kind of a balance, and and then you had the mid-sized states and, and the smaller states and this is all about to change now now it's very much the focus on friends and germany and then uh, uh it's it's harder maybe for the smaller states to um to get uh, to get attention or get their their interest um realized so um i think that's something that has to be negotiated new and we could already see thinking about the the budget and the, the corona relief measures i i mentioned uh, you can see that some fights um, still are there because a lot of people said, you know, the UK has always had its foot on the brake uh, and, and they were reluctant to, uh, to further integrate. And now that the UK is gone, um, you know, this will be a big push for, for integration. But um, you can see that sometimes other states were just hiding behind the UK and using them. And so with uh, Corona relief, I mean, on the one hand, you had people who said, uh, you know, we need that big uh, signal that we have European solidarity and help those states that were hit really hard. And we need to come up with a new scheme. Uh, and I mean, the, the, it is historic, the solution they found that the commission can take up that. So this is something very new, but it was hard won. I mean, there were the frugal four who tried to block this uh, and all without the UK who didn't even uh, play a role in the, in the game anymore. So I, I would say there is some, um, um, recalibration of, of this question and the EU will have to find uh, a way uh, and um, one thing maybe that's specific ab about the Baltics uh, is I think for them uh, but I mean Guntis might know this probably better than me uh, you know it's not just um, about European solidarity but it's also about that Russian threat and if we talk about foreign influence and you know what, what happened in Ukraine and Crim Peninsula that it's um, you know, the, the, the membership of the EU is something much more important for sovereignty of the state than for the Western European state. So um, I think, you know, that's, uh, th there's always this basic um, acceptance, you know, that, that the membership in the EU creates a lot of security for those states that share borders with, with Russia. Indeed, and, and thank you for uh, also including Brexit in this answer because there have been at least three questions here pertaining to how Brexit has reshaped or will reshape the European level party landscape. Um, before this is, we could go on for another half hour, but we have two more minutes here before we uh, close this first uh, Euro democracy forum. Um, I'm gonna sneak in a last question from me, if I may. Um, I'm particularly interested in these movement parties in those um, political animals being generated on the national level, think of Podemos in Spain or Cinquecella in Italy, um, uh, parties that do not really think of themselves primarily as parties, but as movements, and yet are being to some degree forced um, to some degree voluntarily incorporate as parties. So how, how in your research do these movement parties sit with 
the established European level, level party framework. Um, is there an impetus to implode uh, the party concept or is there a sense that once you're on the EU level, you just sign yourself on to a party and become uh, socialized in mainstream party action? Yeah. Yeah, great, great question and, and great debate, um, long debate we, we, could, uh, we could have because um, so far what we did, I think very much resembles, you know, how we know parties on national level and we kind of try to measure Euro parties by that concept. Um, and I mean, thinking about that, they allow individual membership, you know, that they come up with a strategy to have leading candidates, uh, maybe be more influential in, in regards to the European Parliament. I think they have a strategy as well that they think if, the closer we get to national parties, um, you know, the, the more influential uh, we are. But I mean, it could be there could be another strategy. And in, in talking to representatives of in, in the party headquarters, that is um, some something I realized. You know, that, that they think about um, maybe we need to be something else, and we need to be more that coordinating platform, that network platform, offering expertise. And you know, we're going a wrong path if, we, if we're just trying to copy what we have on national level. So I think you know they they would be very interested in reading about this and learning how how there might be a different model for them, uh, and 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 kind of you know shed those disadvantages you have from from national parties and and engage in in new ideas. Um, and that's something, I mean, in, in looking at, at, at social media, and I mean, we only have that, you know, Twitter platform, so there's a lot, you could look at other platforms or even look at the websites and take in media, um, media reports. So the, the question is, how can they influence and, you know, kind of organize a European discourse about the European election, right? And it's not just about the technical means, but also getting people to think about, you know, it's not just about my French interest in the European Union or my Spanish interest, but also what does, you know, what is European solidarity? What are European topics and how do our national topics integrate into this? Um, and so I think that's probably a way for the Euro parties to go forward and, and uh, go in this direction and use probably, I mean, digital tools. Um, there's some research on, on um, digital parties because if you have this large geographical region and you have to combine all these different polities and states and cultures, it's helpful. Uh, and we're learning in the Corona times, we're learning a lot how Zoom makes things easier and um, allows to have communication across continents. So um, that's probably something, uh, a direction uh, the, you know, the parties should embrace like movement network parties and uh, um, yeah, uh, going into that direction. That, that's a good idea. Thank you, Nico. Um, I'm sure many of my students who are also hopefully here, some of them take note because we do do a task force this quarter on what could enhance European solidarity. You had some great points here for us. Thank you so much for being our first speaker here. Um, this was really informative and um, wonderful to get to know research from colleagues. We often talk about a lot of institutional things and don't get to talk too much about what we really work on. Thank you so much for joining in. Thank you, our organizers. Thank you very much, Nico Svitek, and have a peaceful, healthy, and sane rest of the day. Thank you.